Here's the mystery of Thomas Pynchon. Thomas Pynchon loved this book almost as much as he loves cameras. A screaming comes across the sky. It has happened before, but there is nothing to compare it to the now. To the now. Now, here's the mystery of Thomas Pynchon. Financial stipulation, uh, stipend in behalf of uh, Richard Python for the great contribution and to quote from some of the missiles which he has contributed. Today, we must all be aware. The protocol takes precedence over procedure. Folks, if you couldn't recognize him, that is none other than Professor Erwin Corey, the irascible left-wing comedian who called himself the world's greatest expert on everything. He accepted the 1974 National Book Award for Fiction on behalf of author Thomas Pynchon awarded the prize for his novel, Gravity's Rainbow. The date was April 18th, 1974. The place was the Lincoln Center's Alice Tully Hall. The crowd was filled with publishers, agents, and other doyens of the New York City literati. Here's Erwin Corey again. In relation to the tabulation whereby we must once again realize that the great fiction story is now being rehearsed before our very eyes in the Nixon administration, indicating that only an American writer can receive the award for fiction. I do want to thank you, and I want to thank Brezhnev, uh, Kissinger, Acting President of the United States. And I also want to thank Truman Capote. And thank you. Recounting Corey's speech at the gallery, the New York Times called it, quote, a series of bad jokes and mangled syntax, which left some people roaring with laughter and others perplexed. But laughter and perplexity were trademarks of the Thomas Pinchon experience. Pinchon had already established himself as a recluse by the time of the ceremony at Lincoln Center, but the National Book Awards was when Pinchon's irreverence for literary institutions first went national. In the wake of Corey's speech, speculation ran rampant. People thought Corey might have been Pinchon himself, in disguise. Maybe Pinchon was in the crowd, listening. An unknown streaker even sprinted across the stage in the middle of Corey's speech, prompting Corey to quip, I want to thank Mr. Knopf, who just ran through the auditorium. Who was Mr. Knopf in that? Was that like Alfred Knopf, the founder of Doubleday Publishing? Perhaps. I think uh, he was the, the punchline of a Knopf-Knopf joke. <laughs> okay. Okay, sorry. Pynchon had turned the National Book Award into a jape. He was making a joke out of something that was supposed to be prestigious and serious, which was an attitude reflected in the prize-winning novel, Gravity's Rainbow. Maybe it wasn't a coincidence then that a month later the Pulitzer Prize declined to award a winner in fiction. 
Pynchon's Gravity's Rambo had been unanimously suggested by the judges, but the board had stepped in and prevented the award. The machine had turned against Pynchon. So, John, why do you want to start with awards? The National Book Award, the Pulitzer... Well, nothing puts asses in the seats like hardware, baby. Everyone wants to know who's going to win the big gold enchilada come Oscar night. Mm. Seriously, folks. The Pulitzer schism, I think, kind of sets up a recurring idea of Gravity's Rainbow and of Pinchon's writing generally and, when you know it, of this podcast. A opposition between solitudes, between the they system and the we system, between officialdom and the counterforce. The kerfuffle between... Pinchon and his publishers and the Pulitzer crew allegorized the very themes at the heart of Gravity's Rainbow. There would be no winner that year. No Pulitzer Prize for literature. Nothing. Null. Zero. Zeros play a big role in the novel Gravity's Rainbow. I mean, look, this book is practically impossible to neatly summarize. Its action and plot involve... Clandestine intelligence agencies, psychedelic experiments, Pavlovian systems, advanced physics formulas, colonial genocide, racial tensions, Calvinism, subject to right relations, deep state machinations, Nazi rat lines into America, mind control and weapons manufacturing, Kabbalah, cryptology, and even a few tarot readings. But at its core, the story of Gravity's Rainbow, such as it is, follows various factions in post-war Europe who are scrambling to recover information about a mysterious rocket known as the Zero 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 zero. The five O. The five O. I think five O works. Five O, I like. Yeah. Okay. My name is John Semley. I'm a writer and a researcher. Uh, I do a bunch of other stuff, uh, and I use the early months of the good old fashioned COVID nineteen pandemic to read and reread a bunch of Thomas Pynchon novels, which were otherwise serving a mostly load bearing function on my bookshelf. And I got super into them, and they destroyed my mind, and I'm here to rebuild it live. I recently wrote a reader's guide for Gravity's Rainbow called Proverbs for Paranoids, which I'll link to in the show notes, or you can just freaking look up. My name is Asher Dark. I'm a fiction writer and editor who's basically using this podcast as an excuse to hang out with my buddy John and talk about pension. The podcast is using John's guide as a jumping off point. In every episode, we'll work through the book, chapter-by-chapter chunks, using the Proverbs for Paranoids guide as a guide. Damn, what a tantalizing pitch. I can imagine so many people are still listening. (laughs) Each episode would include a summary of a number of chapters or episodes or whatever you want to call them from Gravity's Rainbow. Then we'll talk about them, and then we'll bring in thoughts from a guest or two that will help dive deeper to the book's big themes and ideas. We might make jokes. Maybe there'll be songs. Yeah. To get things started, as a way of taking us to ground zero, so to speak, I was wondering if you, John, might give us some sort of cursory background to the novel and Pynchon's biography, maybe? You mean, like, just from the top of my head? Yeah, literally off the top of your head, tell me everything you know about Thomas Pynchon. Let me dig into the top of my head! (laughs) Let me get you a shovel. (laughs) So, if you know anything about Thomas Pynchon... You probably know that he's something of a famous recluse. I mean, I would kind of argue that that word recluse doesn't really apply, but we can get into all that later. What matters? I want to know why. What? Why? Well, I think a recluse is like a hermit or someone who like is uh, sort of psychologically averse to being part of society. I think Mm -hmm. Pinchon chooses, for reasons that we can talk about in later episodes, to not 
be a part of that society, or at least to not be a part of the media and cultural apparatus mm -hmm. that surrounds uh, authors and creative people and tries to sort of turn them from private individuals into public figures. I think he's a sort of conscientious objector in that whole process mm -hmm. in a way that is politically consistent with a lot of stuff going on in his fiction. Basically, what's important is that he ranks atop any list of respectably obscure writers like Salinger, Dickinson, Elena Ferrante. Can you think of any others, John? God, who wrote the Bible. <laughs> yeah, he never does press. <laughs> what are you hiding up there? <laughs> Pigeon doesn't do interviews. His publicity for his own work amounts to a series of hoaxes and pranks and goof-em-ups. But here's what we do know, more or less. What do we know, John? Thomas Ruggles Pynchon Jr. was born on May 8th, 1937 in Glen Cove, a wealthy waterfront enclave of Long Island. His mother, Catherine Frances Bennett, worked as a nurse, and his father, Thomas Ruggles Pynchon Sr., came from a long line of engineers. Pynchon would also briefly flirt with a career in engineering, although from the writing side, he was a technical writer at Boeing in the rocket program which directly informs Gravity's Rainbow, but more on Don't that later. Don't get ahead of yourself. More on that later. His father also worked in local politics, serving briefly as town supervisor before being voted out amid a scandal that saw Pynchon the Elder colluding to overpay a company who had secured a road resurfacing contract. He admitted, perhaps jokingly, to having accepted no bribe other than some free poinsettias. So the Pynchons are friends of the family, essentially. The one of us. Yeah, the yeah. one of us. Um, but Pynchon's family's political bona fides go back much further than Long Island, do they not, my friend John? Excellent question, yeah. Pynchon's great, 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 great... Five greats. Five greats. Grandfather was Colonel William Pynchon, an English fur trader and politician who was one of the original settlers of Roxbury, Massachusetts, way back in 1630. He would later, in 1635, lead an expedition that resulted in the founding of Springfield, Massachusetts. And actually, John, I have a fun tidbit for you here. It turns out he was actually the basis for the great American hero, Homer Simpson of Springfield. Ah, from Simpsons, though. <laughs> later in the 17th century, Colonel William Pynchon himself was accused of heresy. Which trial mode? The reason? Well, it was something he wrote called The Meritorious Price of Our Redemption. It was attract, attributed to William Pynchon, gentleman in New England. Mm. The meritorious price of our redemption is too damn high. Drawing from a range of esoteric texts, the meritorious price of our redemption argued against various puritanical assumptions that grace was achieved not through Christ's suffering and torment, but rather by his obedience to God. Mm. This idea that God's grace could be earned and wasn't merely imparted on the Puritan elect proved massively destabilizing to the authority of that same Puritan elect. Copies of the books were burned in Boston Commons, and William Pynchon stealthily spirited himself back to England, where he died in 1662. Now, before he did this, he just as stealthily transferred all his colonial land and his wealth to his son John, who was the great-great-great-great-grandfather of the nominalist Thomas R. Pynchon Jr. So Pynchon's earliest American ancestor was an edgelord. And he was a bit of a reply guy, actually, oh, if you think he? about it. Yeah. Well, the meritorious price of our redemption is sort of a reply to the notion mm -hmm. of Puritan authority. Beyond the story of William Pynchon just being plain interesting, I think, it also speaks to Thomas Pynchon's historical and familial milieu. This is a guy descended from early colonial Mayflower types. And not only that, but he was descended from someone who would piss off and in turn be persecuted by those same types. 
In Gravity's Rainbow, the meritorious price of our redemption is reworked into the fictional On Preterition, a heretical text published by William Slothrop, the distant ancestor of the book's sort of hero, Tyrone Slothrop. More on that later. But I think the important thing is that it's possible to read Pynchon's own biography through his work. His body of work, and Gravity's Rainbow especially, works by disguising fact as fiction and vice versa. Back to the biographical sketch, Pynchon attended Oyster Bay High School in Long Island, where he earned a reputation as a keen student and a bit of an oddball. He published stories in the school newspaper, and I do happen to know from reading those school newspaper stories... Did you actually? Yeah, I have oh. a collection that includes them. Uh-huh. Uh, he palled around with a group of friends that he referred to as the boys. Oh, yeah. well, Thomas mentioned he's just like us. He's one of the boys. Me and the boys. He graduated from high school early at age 16 Nerd. and shipped upstate to Cornell to study engineering. This was in the fall of 1953. But from here, details start getting scant or scanter. In 1955, at the end of his sophomore year at Cornell, Pynchon enlisted in the U.S. Navy. He was trained as an electrician and stationed aboard the USS Hank. Ah, the famous Hank. It was a World War II-era vintage ship that was dispatched from Virginia to the Mediterranean during the Suez Crisis. One of the only known photos of Pynchon, smiling his goofy bucktooth smile and wearing a jaunty Navy-issue Dixie Cup hat, dates to this period. Pynchon returned to Cornell in 1957. He dropped engineering in favor of English, and he began publishing short stories in the Cornell Writer, which were drawn from his Navy experiences and stories of life in the service. Didn't he, like, take classes from Vladimir Nabokov? I mean, there is speculation because Pynchon was at Cornell at the same time that Vladimir Nabokov was there teaching literature classes and doing a series of lectures. People think that he attended some of these lectures. Nabokov's wife apparently mentioned that she could recall seeing Pynchon's handwriting. But these sort of uh, speculations and the exploration of the connections between these two writers, it has become something of a sub-industry in the whole Pynchon studies industrial complex. Mm. But anyways, the answer to this and most questions regarding Pynchon is... I don't know, maybe? Maybe? <laughs> yeah. palled around with Cornell's hip literary set, including writers David Schetzline and Kirkpatrick Sale, as well as folk singer-come-author Richard Farina, to whom Gravity's Rainbow is dedicated. With Sale, Thomas Pynchon collaborated on an unfinished sci-fi operetta called Minstrel Island, which imagines a future in which IBM controls the world. It was never mounted. Just, just like you? No, I was going to say just like you. Just like you. You've never been mounted. <laughs> The operetta was never mounted or even completed, but an unfinished manuscript can be accessed via the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Texas. Pynchon graduated from Cornell in 1959. He moved to Seattle. Scrambled eggs on my face. Hey, maybe I hear that Thomas Pynchon is moving from Cornell to Seattle to take work at Boeing as a technical writer, contributing on byline articles to the Bomac Service News. But I don't know what to do with those surface-to-air missiles and scrambled eggs. <laughs> nice. that was Anyways, kind of all of which is to say that he wrote unbylined articles for the BOMAC Service News, which was the in-house magazine dedicated to the BOMAC surface-to-air missile system. Pynchon also worked on his first novel, V, which was published in 1963 by J.B. Co., which was based out of Philadelphia, where we now... So the Boeing thing is going to become very important to Gravity's Rainbow. We're not going to say a lot now, but John, can you give us a little tease? 
I'll give you a little taste, something to wet your beak with. Boeing was the inspiration for the fictional Yo-Yo Dine Incorporated, a defense contractor that appears in a few of Pynchon's novels, starting with V. But most importantly, for our purposes anyways, the job at Boeing gave Pynchon an immense amount of technical expertise on subjects ranging from mathematics to rocket science to defense contracting itself. This knowledge would come to bear on Gravity's Rainbow in a bunch of different ways that we'll hash out in future episodes. The publication of V would change Pynchon's life. He was only 26... He was feted as a literary wunderkind. Celebrated, we could say. No, I like feted. Have you ever been feted? I was feted once. Really? Yeah, I won a prize in grad school. Fellas. The man's for playwriting. Been, the man's been feted. Yes, that's right. Um, New York Times critic George Plimpton hailed the young Pynchon as a writer of staggering promise. The money and esteem the book afforded Pynchon allowed him to quit Boeing. From there, Pynchon's movements get a little harder to track. Always solitary and odd, Pynchon's full-on commitment to writing allowed him to withdraw more or less entirely. He shuffled between New York, Mexico, Houston, and Los Angeles, where he rented an apartment in Manhattan Beach. And if you watch Paul Thomas Anderson's 2014 film adaptation of Pinchon's Inherent Vice, there's a shot of a man in a sort of street-side garage, Quonset hut, appearing to be at a desk, writing, and some speculate that this is Pinchon himself. Anderson has kind of insisted that... I bet it is. Yeah, or there's another thing in a mirror maybe he's in. I don't know. Mm. Um, but some speculate that this is Pinchon himself and that the thing that he's writing, even more speculatively, is Gravity's Rainbow. Wow. Well, he did write it in California, did he not? He did. If Pynchon had, until that point, been flirting with the idea of being a mysterious recluse, dodging reporters and photographers, keeping no real fixed address, avoiding interviews, and like all public appearances, he was by this time committing fully to the bit. He was blacking out his windows, writing all night and sleeping all day. Jules Siegel, a journalist who hung out with Pynchon in those days and who was, by his own account, in a 1977 Playboy article, effectively cuckolded by the author. What's the name of that article again? It's called, Who is Thomas Minchin and Why Did He Run Away With My Wife? Something like that. Can't get, can't beat that. Anyway, Siegel described Pynchon's Manhattan Beach digs as a monk cell decorated by the Salvation Army. Mm. And it was here that Pynchon would spend years reading, researching, and synthesizing the encyclopedic swaths of information and esoterica into Gravity's Rainbow. Uh, in November yeah. 1970, deep in the throes of living in his blacked-out Manhattan Beach apartment, Pynchon penned a letter to Arthur Misener, a Cornell English professor who Pynchon presumably studied under. He wrote, I'm going to read this for you, John, and I'm going to do a Long Island accent. You, you got to do it like Raymond. The more, the further <laughs> I get in this wretched profession, I'm going to... <laughs> the further I get into being a sports journalist, Deborah, the clearer it is... <laughs> The further I get into this wretched profession, the clearer it is I am doing very little consciously beyond some clerk routine, assembling, expediting, and that either A, there is an extra personal source, or B, readers are the ones who do most of the work, or all of the above, which is not a bring down to realize. So, John, what the hell does he mean by that? Well, I think with option A, he's basically talking about the fairly bog standard idea that artists are kind of conduits through some which some sort of divinity or form of creativity uh, can flow and that the act of writing is almost a sort of not unconscious but almost a super conscious state uh, and B he's saying that a lot of the meaning making work and this is a very topical idea at the time he was writing the era of the death of the author and so on mm. he's saying a lot of that work ultimately falls to the reader and also that that is not a problem 
that he likes that. It kind of doesn't make sense. Well, it that d- either there's an extra personal source or the readers are the ones who do the most work. Those two aren't in opposition. There can be an extra personal source and the readers still have to do the work. Yeah, but he also says, or all the above, which permits the right, right, right. both things are true simultaneously. Right. So basically, long story short, we're the readers doing the work. We want to proceed in that spirit. Uh, we want to do the work of disentangling gravity's rainbow in order to illuminate what the book says. You know, what it says about its author, about war, about corporatism, about the mysterious other world that lurks behind the veil of appearances, and about the nature of reality that we were all born into against mm-hmm. our will and are forced to share. So we, along with you, who can read along mm. and follow the bouncing ball, uh, can join us as we dig into the muck and mire mm-hmm. of Gravity's Rainbow. But you can also use the podcast as a cheat cheat mode, cheat code cheat mode, right? Don't yeah. actually have to read the book. You can just listen to us, yeah. hear everything we have to say, and then sound smart. Next time, no one t- <laughs> asks you about Thomas Pinchon's Gravity's and then, Rainbow. And then you're at a party, and you're like, uh, someone's like, have you read Gravity's Rainbow? And you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then you run into the bathroom for 45 <laughs> minutes and <laughs> blast an episode <laughs> of the podcast. <laughs> run into the bathroom for seven hours and listen to all of season one. You just come out like, Nazis. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, they found that rocket, eh? Number five. Ah, the CIA are all Nazis. Who would have thought? Well, I feel like that's a okay place to leave it. As any, we're the bosses of the whole thing, so we can make those kinds of decisions. True. Thank you for listening. Uh, Next week, or next episode, when this comes out, maybe Mm -hmm. in a week, maybe in a month, maybe in 50 years, uh, we'll be starting into Gravity's Rainbow proper if you want to read along, you can read part one, chapters one through nine. Basically, we'll be going through those sections, and every week we'll be talking about a different group of chapters and having a discussion on topics pertaining to the novel, ranging from everything from the history of the V-2 rocket and Project Paperclip to the Herero genocide and German colonialism in Africa to MK Ultra and Project Artichoke. And let's not forget about Artichoke. <laughs> We'll also be covering post-war corporate geopolitics, synthetic chemistry, Pynchon himself, maybe a little cinema talk. Yeah, and we'll just kind of gab about all the, you know, stuff that bubbles to the surface in this book and try to make sense of it. You know, as we said, it's a dense and deeply referential book, and sometimes it just helps to get your bearings. And sometimes learning about the stuff adjacent to the book can seem more fun than reading the book itself, especially if you're Asher who doesn't like Thomas Pynchon's writing. (laughs) I do, but just (laughs) I'm skeptical. Right. Um, We should talk about that at some point. We will. Like whether... We personally like, although I must say, I do like this book quite a bit. Yeah, I'm sure by the time we're done this, we'll both hate the book. So maybe we I'm can... liking it more and more. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyways, thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and you know, mail a copy to your friends and write to us. Yes. Just say hi. Just say hello, and we'll speak to you next time. Love you. So Learners is written and produced by Asha Dark and John Semley in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Original music by Asha Dark and Scotty Leach. Technical support by Raina Doris. 
Read John's Gravity's Rainbow Guide at www.gravitysrainbowguide.com. And remember, we love you. Hey everybody, it's me, your co-host, John, again. I want to just uh, zip right in here at the end of the episode and tell you that we have set up a slow learner's hotline. What the hell is a slow learner's hotline? Well, it is a phone number you can call, leave us a message, if you have a question, a query, a theory about Gravity's Rainbow, call and leave a short message, I repeat, a short message, and we will try to address it on the show, or maybe do a bonus episode where we work through a bunch of them. The number you can dial is 609-353-6873. Once again, that's 609-353-6873. So call and leave a short message, and we will try to get to it. And weirdly, I believe we already have one in the inbox. I don't really know how that works, but let's check it out. Hey, it's Thomas Pynchon. I heard you boys uh, start starting a podcast about my book, Gravity's Rainbow. Uh, make sure you talk about all the stuff in um in the middle and uh smoke one down for me at the end i got your interview request and i'll be there uh in a couple hours make sure you have diet ginger ale all right bye bye now